Thank you so much, Eric and Bridget, for that. Take out your Bible. Turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the chairs in front of you. Maybe a neighbor could help you look on. And if you don't own a Bible, in the back we have some paperback Bibles we'd love to give to you. On your way out the door, just right back there, grab one as a gift from us to you. James, chapter 5. You know, my parents told a story about me when I was a young boy. I don't know how old I was, maybe five or so, maybe a little bit younger, running around as my parents were frantically on a Sunday morning trying to get everybody ready to go to church. And there they went, and they looked in every corner of the house, and uh, everybody was ready, and except me. I wasn't quite ready yet, and they couldn't find me. Uh, they, they didn't know where I was, and so they went, and then they found me. There I was in the living room staring up at the Christmas tree. And they said, Marshall, what are you doing? I said, I'm just waiting for Christmas. You know, I, I used to enjoy waiting. I don't like waiting anymore. I, I have gotten tired of waiting. I would rather have things right now. Uh, that, is, that is my uh, personality. That's my tendency. In fact, I'm the only person I know who still uses a, a phone to call people and, and talk to them with my voice. And the, uh, sometimes I will call people who I, I truly love, and they will say something like, uh, hang on a second. And I, I, I talk to them, and I'm waiting, and, I, and I, I'm on the phone with them, but they're finishing up a conversation they're having or they're doing something, and I'm like, I'm just standing there. I'm, I'm a captive. I cannot do anything uh, until they're ready to talk to me, and then they're ready. See, now I haven't figured out the whole text ahead of time thing. I haven't gotten there uh, quite yet. Uh, you know, there, just a few weeks ago, I had to go to the DMV uh, to, to get some things taken care of, and I walked in, and there was a series of waiting in lines. In fact, you wait in line to get a number so you can wait in line, <laughs> and it was amazing. I had never, uh, never quite put that all together, but I realized why I got so frustrated, because I, now I just bring a book with me, and I, I get a little bit of reading done while I'm waiting. Just, just yesterday, my wife calls me and says, can you grab uh, a roast, and we like to go get our roast at Sam's, which is the best, one of the best places to get that kind of a thing. And so, uh, but the problem is Sam's on a Saturday is, is chaos. And so uh, I said, well, I don't want to go to Sam's on a Saturday, but um, to serve my family, I will. And I will, I will love my family by doing this. But then I remembered something. This is not an advertisement. This has not been paid for, I promise. I, I remember that there's this cool thing. You can use your phone and you can get on an app and you can actually buy the thing in the store, scan it on your app, pay for it on your phone and walk out the door. And I did all that, and it was, it was incredible. I looked at all these people in those lines, and I thought, suckers. <laughs> they have to wait, and I don't have to. I'm just, I'm like, I'm stealing this piece of meat. I'm just walking out the door, like, scan my phone. You have to take my word. I paid for it. I mean, it's amazing. I hate to wait. Waiting is, is, is terrible because it, it, it is, I think, and it, to be completely honest, the reason I, I think that waiting is so hard for us is that it reminds us the world is not about us and is not centered on my likes and dislikes. It's not centered on my schedule. Sometimes I bump up against things that means that I have to wait and my schedule has to take a back seat. And the world is not about me. And the world is not about you. And, and when we, we come up against that and we realize that everything doesn't revolve around us, it reminds us we cannot snap and the world steps in line. That's just not how things work. And waiting is, is hard. Waiting is difficult. And, but in a word, it reminds us that we are creatures, that God is the creator. And, and really what it reminds us of is that God is sovereign, not we. Right? No, we are not sovereign. And, and that's such an important lesson to take into this time of year, into this season. Patience is hard to learn. We need God's grace to learn patience. The title of the message today is, While You Wait. And I hope that the message will be a challenge, encouragement to you today. Father, we ask that you open up our hearts as we open up your word, and may we be responsive to it. Help us not to be um, uh, putting this aside. Help us not to think this doesn't apply to us. We all 
need to have our hearts evaluated as we wait for your coming. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter, James, to Jewish believers who were scattered around the world due to persecution, were the perfect audience for this message from the Bible that we have today. I mean, perhaps no area is a clearer demonstration of God's complete sovereignty than the timing of the second coming of Christ. We see this in, in, um, in verses like this, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We do not know when Christ will return. And while we wait for His coming, while we wait for the return of Christ, while we wait for the return of the Lord, the rapture of His church, we wait for this. There are several things that must happen. And the Bible instructs us this in James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Read with me. He says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Number one, we must be patient while you wait for His coming. This is the number one thing we must do while we wait for the coming of Christ. You need to be patient. You need to be patient. And there is an attitude of patience that is explained here, which is of eager expectation. This is important for us to understand because my attitude of patience normally is, is frustration, right? If I am forced to be, if I am being forced to wait, my tendency is to be frustrated that I am having to wait. What God tells us here is that we ought to have an eager expectation. Let's look at the passage and find this. He says, first, the audience is to brothers. So this is written to believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this letter is definitely applicable in your life. He says, you brothers, and there's a command here. He's a direct command. It's an imperative. He says, to be obedient to God, we have to follow this command. And the command is, be patient. The word is to be long, uh, macrothumeo, the idea of long suffering, this you standing up and surviving under extended pressure. And what do we need in order to be patient? Well, our circumstances lead us to lose patience, to give up, Sometimes our circumstances lead us to change strategy because we don't think that something is working, and that's the moment we need patience to eagerly expect what's coming. We need to have an eager expectation for the good that is coming that allows us to undergo this pressure so we can continue to head on. I mean, I think this is, a lot of you know exactly what this is like because you have gone through a journey in your life uh, on a physical level. A lot of you have really um, worked hard to lose weight. And you know, when you're losing weight, I've talked to many of you who've had this struggle, you know, there's a time when you make a bunch of changes or hard changes, things you have to start eating differently, you have to start exercising differently, you have to start thinking differently about a lot of different things. And you make these changes, and, and the, 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 the change that you make are hard, the changes that you've made are hard, but the, uh, the benefits have not yet shown up yet. You know, they're not yet there. And so you're thinking to yourself, you know, this, I know all the hard stuff, like that's obvious, but the good stuff I'm not sure about yet. Like, is the benefit going to be worth all the hardship that I'm going through? And it's in this moment, in that in-between, before the good stuff comes and after the hard stuff has begun, that this call for us to be patient is most important. Because he's not, we're called to be patient to, it's not that we're to give up or, or, to, or to stop trying, it's to live in patience is to have an expectation for good from the hand of the Lord. In fact, he says we're to do this until the return of Christ and His second coming. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're anticipating. 
If you look at the next part of verse 7, he says the example of this is like a farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives early and latter rain. He says, look how the farmers do their work. They wait patiently for this valuable fruit of the earth. What's the manner of their waiting? They're doing it patiently until it rains, and there is an eager expectation for what's going to come from the ground. They are hoping, they, they know that God's plan is good, and they know that God will make this grow, and so they are looking forward to this, and they are patient, waiting for the rains to come. They can't make the rains come. They can't do anything to make the rains come. God brings the rain, and they know this, and they eagerly wait for that. So the command, if you read the rest of this verse, he says in verse 8, you also, Christian, be patient. Be patient like a farmer is patient. How do we uh, attain this patience? The old story goes, the man prayed, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> That's not how it works. We, if we ask for God to give us patience, what you should expect is you should expect difficulties to come your way. Because the Bible tells us in James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. If you ask God to bring patience you will experience trials and testing because that's how God forges patience in your life. We are forged in these hard things, that hard things that we don't like, the hard things we don't want to do. And he says, let patience have its perfect work, its complete work, its work of making you who God wants you to be, its completing work so you may be perfect and complete, don't, not lacking in anything. Remember, this has been a theme from the beginning of the book, that in order to attain patience, your faith is tested. And then this patience being tested leads you in your walk of progressive sanctification. We need to be patient. The attitude of patience is this eager expectation. We are looking forward to what God is going to do, understanding the present. The second thing we're going to see is the strategy for patience. Look at verse 8, the second part of verse 8. He says this. Look at this key idea. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your heart. What does it mean to establish? Well, the word steiridzo, which is the Greek word for establish here, it has the idea of strengthening, supporting, or resolving. Strengthening your heart to resolve to do something. And the point here is this is not a time for passivity. When I'm waiting in the DMV and I've got my number to sit and wait for my number to be called, and I'm waiting, uh, you know, for, I am, I am literally, there's nothing I can do except wait. I just am passively waiting for someone else to act. But what the Bible tells us to do is that while we're, act, while we're waiting, it's not a passive waiting like that at all. In fact, it is an active strengthening of your heart. That's what you do when you wait. You see that word, establish? This is something not that you do to yourself or for, you, for yourself. This is what you allow God to do in your heart and within you as you submit to Him. God is the one who establishes you. You establish your heart as you submit to God. I'm going to show you this in the Scripture because Paul, when he writes to, uh, his two letters to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, sorry, they're in Thessalonica, in both letters, he mentions God establishing and stabilizing them while they wait for the second coming. Let's look at these verses. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 3. He says, and may the Lord, this is a prayer for them, make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless in his holiness before God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
God is the one who strengthens and establishes and secures your heart. In 2 Thessalonians 3, the same kind of thing happens. He says, but the Lord is faithful. And what does the Lord do here? Who will what? Establish or strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. God is the one who gives you the strength and who strengthens and stabilizes your heart. We see this throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5 also uses this word. He says, may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. God's work of perfecting you involves His strengthening you. It's like putting rebar in the concrete. It's the establishment and strengthening that happens. This will prevent us, actually, if we are strengthened in God's truth, it will prevent us from being deceived. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, do not be carried away away or carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Be established by the grace of God, and you will be strengthened by that grace and not by these other… He's talking here about rituals and about outside holiness. You're talking about foods and those kinds of things that the Hebrews would have been very familiar with. Why are we to establish ourselves? Verse 8 says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, means that it is next on the docket. It is the next thing that we have to look forward to. There's nothing that needs to happen before Christ returns. We should be looking for the blessed and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the next thing we should be anticipating as the church. We should be looking forward to that as we have been for generation after generation. We are anticipating the coming of the Lord. Patience is not a passive activity. The the simple application for this part of the message is that waiting around for something to happen is not what we're asking about. It's much more like holding the line against an invading force while you wait for the reinforcements to show up. That's the idea of patience, this eager and earnest expectation what's going to happen. We We are not to be patient passively. We are to be patient actively. Be patient while you wait for His coming. Secondly, look at verse 9. We'll see we are to be thankful while you wait for His coming. One of the dangers, and you're in a holding pattern waiting for God to do His work, is you get frustrated with other people. You get irritated. And I believe there's a connection here, and that's the reason that God directs us to be careful how we treat other people while we're waiting for Him. Verse 9 says this. Look at your Bible. It says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What is the danger of grumbling? Well, normally the word grumble in the Bible stands by itself. To grumble is just to grumble, 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 right? You're you're mad at the world. You just, you you complain. Usually grumbling happens under your breath when no one else can hear you as you walk away in frustration, grumble, 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 right? But here the word actually has a little more uh, difficult or hard um, idea. It's the idea that you're grumbling against somebody, that you're actually pointing your finger at someone when you grumble. It's not just like an internal monologue. You're pointing your finger at someone, and you're angry at someone, and you're frustrated with someone, and you're complaining about someone. And he says here, instead of grumbling against one another or complaining about one another, we need to be positive in our relationships. Do not grumble against one another. You need to love the people around you. And sometimes it's fun and easy to love the people around you. They're really nice. 
They're really great. Christmas time is wonderful, right? Everybody's got a nice colored clothes, and we're all rejoicing and singing, you know, wonderful songs, and everything's great. But you know, that doesn't always have to. It doesn't always that way. Very often, uh, we we crash, and we get angry at each other. We get frustrated with each other so quickly. God tells us instead of grumbling against each other, we need to appreciate how people are, what gifts they bring to the table, what ways they contribute contribute to the church. You know, grumbling is contagious. If you grumble, people around you will grumble. And, and you know, there are a lot of things like that are contagious. Thankfulness is contagious. A positive attitude is contagious. Being grateful to God is contagious. Grumbling is a very bad thing. So what qualifies as grumbling? I have just two little things I was thinking about this week that qualify as grumbling. Number one is complaining. Just simple complaining. You ever noticed how easy it is to get frustrated with other people when you're stuck waiting? You stop looking forward and you start looking around you and think, I can't believe I'm with these people. Or what, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this situation? Or, man, you never notice the way that person combs their hair? It's just crazy. Like, what's going on with that? Why do they always smell that way? There's some sort of smell going on with this person, you know? I can't stand to be around that person. They always talk about whatever, football. It's always football. Why can't it be something else? It, it, it's that way. When we get around people, we tend, instead of looking, we're waiting, we tend to stand to look at each other. Grumbling. The second one is blaming people. I think sometimes complaining or grumbling here can be blaming people for the difficulties you're facing. You know the reason we have so much trouble in this marriage is because of my wife. It's her fault. Oh, my kids, they're such a trouble, you might say. You might say, oh, the reason that we have this issue is because of my, my coworker. Uh, he just messes everything up. That's the reason we're in trouble. And you start blaming other people and grumbling against other people. But you know what? Patience is linked with love and bearing with each other. Look at this verse out of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you or implore you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. He describes the calling. He says, do this with all lowliness and gentleness. That's humility and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. You need to love other people and bear with them. Be thankful while you wait for his company coming. Be, be careful about the dangers of grumbling because there is an accountability for grumbling. He says in the last part of verse 9, lest you be condemned, behold, the judge is standing at the door. A grumbling heart must be transformed into a grateful heart. And there's a simple way of replacement. We talk about this all the time with put off, renew, put on. Put off the old man, renew the heart, put on the new man. When you're tempted to grumble, when you're tempted to complain, find something to be thankful for. He says you need to be careful because God will hold you accountable for how you complain. Be thankful for other people, even though you might struggle with them from time to time. Be thankful for circumstances, no matter how difficult they may be as you wait for the coming of the Lord. He says, lest you be condemned, lest you be judged, God does not overlook it when believers criticize or grumble against each other. He will bring these actions to their account. God will hold you responsible for this. And he says this, behold, the judge is standing at the door. How would, you, how would it change everything? And what you're saying is as you're having a conversation, you look over the shoulder of your friend and there stands Jesus. And he's listening to every word you're saying. He's eavesdropping on your conversation. Would it change the way you talk about someone when you look over your shoulder of your friend and there is the Lord in Jesus Christ who loves you so much, who died for you, and who died for your friend as well and loves your friend? 
how, how would it change to know that the judge is standing at the door? How would it change to know that Jesus is right there? Well, it's not a newsflash here, but you all know this. He is right there. He's right here among us. Our Lord is with us. He says the same yesterday, today, forever. Christ says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with us. And when we speak, he is with us. When we murmur, he is with us. And we need to be careful and keep that in mind. In fact, we ought to not be critical and judgmental of others. The Bible tells us in Matthew 7 that we should not judge, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you use, you judge, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And what do you, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye? Oh, hypocrite, first remove the plank in your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We spend a lot of time on these passages like this that talk about the fact that we ought to treat each other carefully and not complain against each other. Instead, we ought to lovingly correct once we have dealt with the sin in our life. Don't complain against each other. Be thankful. Thirdly, endure while you wait for His coming. Here's some examples of endurance. Look at verse 10. He says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of two. One thing, one thing here, suffering and two, patience. Notice the example of suffering and patience, the prophets. Think about these prophets. I mean, I was just looking through my Bible. You think about the, the, the kinds of men who experience hardship in the Bible. We should not be surprised when we face hardship in our ministry and in our lives. I mean, those people in the Old Testament had the same kinds of things. We'll talk about Job in a second. That comes later in the text. But he mentions Jeremiah. I mentioned Jeremiah in my thinking. I look at this and I think of Jeremiah, the prophet who, who experienced great hardship. I think about all the things that Jeremiah went through as a prophet. He, he faced suffering by being rejected by those he preached to. I am so grateful for our church that listens and, and responds to the Word of God. It is a joy to preach here. Praise God. I mean, we can preach the Word of God. People nod along. People make notes. People come to me afterwards and say, man, the Lord has been working in my life. There is, there is a, the Spirit of God works, and that is a wonderful thing. But can you imagine being a preacher in a church with a bunch of people who scowl the whole time, who look at you and say, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get to me today or I don't believe anything you're saying, preacher. Can you imagine how hard that would be? I mean, I'd probably just give up. I would say, Lord, I think you're calling me somewhere else. That's what I would say. If it was like a whole group, I would say, well, obviously they're not listening to me, but God called Jeremiah, and when Jeremiah preached to people, people looked at him and said, oh, whatever. We're not listening to you, Jeremiah. How much hardship is that? How difficult is that? And he endured, though. He was threatened. He was persecuted throughout his ministry. He had a man named Pasher who, who struck him and put him in stocks as a, to be a mockery of, of, in front of the people. Jeremiah was even shut up in prison because of his preaching. He suffered with patience. He mourned, he wept, but he refused to stop preaching. He's a great example of suffering and patience because there is a blessing of endurance. Look at verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job, seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. There is a blessing of persecution. And I, I think this is hard for us to grasp, but Jesus introduces this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, if you think about people who are blessed, if I say, man, that person is just really blessed, what do you think I mean? Normally you think I mean that they have been gift, they have gifts from God, that they have maybe a, a very nice house and a wonderful family and they have good health and all these kinds of things. But you know what God says? Man, that person's blessed. You know what that means? They're going through trials and God is with them. He says, count the people blessed who go through trials. Count them blessed who endure the trials. If you endure it, this difficulty, you are blessed. And he gives the example of Job. And if you've read and studied Job, you'll notice Job's version of perseverance is definitely not passive. He's arguing with his friends. He's praying to God. He's even arguing with God a little bit and saying, Lord, what's going on? He says, you have heard this. James says, you have heard this. It shouldn't surprise us. But I want you to notice this phrase. If you have a pencil, you might want to underline it. He says, you have seen the end of the Lord, or the end intended by the Lord. What that means is that this is God's goal. The word end means goal or purpose. It's the same idea of the word complete, what God is doing. You have seen what God is doing. And and think about how you can see what God is doing in the book of Job. I mean, we have the book of Job. We have the first two chapters of the book of Job where we see what's going on with God and Satan. We see what's going on with uh, the, 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 the challenge to Job's righteousness. We see that. We see what's happening. Job did not see that part. He was confused. He's in the middle of his life. Everything's going normal. Then boom, he loses everything. And to him, he doesn't understand what God is doing. And he says here, James says here, you have seen the end of the Lord. You know what God's doing? Over and over again, we see the purpose. So, a couple of translations of this phrase, New American Standard, says the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Perhaps that's good. I like what the NET says. You have seen the Lord's purpose. You have seen what God is doing. You have seen God's purpose for allowing these difficulties in Job's life. And if you can see God's purpose for allowing difficulties in Job's life, what's the extension we can make? We can see God's purpose for allowing difficulties in in my life. I can see that God has a purpose. God has an end. God has an end intended by the Lord. There is an end here. There is a purpose here. We are enduring because God has a point. God is using this in a specific purpose. What do we see about God? Look at verse 11. Would you look at verse 11? The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I think about God's compassion and His mercy, and we think about, He says, He is not just compassionate, He is what? Very compassionate. God, God is, what's the temptation you face when you're enduring hardship? What, what's the question you ask God? Lord, do you love me? Sometimes people say, Lord, are you capable? But most people I talk to say, Lord, do you have you forgotten about me? Do you still love me? And what does the Bible tells us? The Lord is very compassionate. He's more compassionate than you would ever expect. We should learn to lean on and trust the compassion of God. God's compassion, a love that gives, a love that sustains, is also a love that allows us to go through hardship so we can be more like Jesus. But God's mercy is that God is concerned about your misery. 
That's what that word mercy means. It means someone who was concerned about the, 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 mercy, the, the, the hardship of another person, someone who has pity. And I think it's, it's easiest lie to believe when you're going through hardship is that God doesn't love me and God doesn't care about me. But the Bible's telling you right after it talks about endurance, right after he talks about endurance, James says, remember, God is extremely compassionate and God is very merciful. So don't lose that in the midst of your hardship. Confront your heart with the truth that the one who made you pities you and loves you. Let's look at this last point as we conclude. Verse 12 shows us that we need to show integrity while we wait for His coming. Some commentators and scholars aren't sure how this following verse is connected to the passage we just read, but if you read it in its context, I think it connects well to this theme of while we wait for the coming of the Lord. He says this, but above all, brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, lest let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. First, you show integrity in your commitments. Friends, I encourage you, show integrity in your commitments. Don't swear is not a prohibition against saying what we in English call swear words or dirty words or curse words. What it's using is talking about using the name of the Lord as an oath to verify a truth that you know you're going to say. What happened in Jesus' time, in the time of the apostles, what people would swear in order to get out of, uh, of doing what they, needed, what they were supposed to do. Uh, and what it would look like is this. They, they would swear by things, uh, less sacred things. Uh, they would say, I, I swear by the post of the temple that I will do such and such. And then they didn't have to do it because the post of the temple isn't nearly as holy as the temple, which isn't nearly as holy as God. See, if you just sworn by God, then you would have had to do it. But since you just swore by the post of the temple, you don't really have to do it. Like, if you don't do it, it's not a big deal. And that sounds really crazy to us, but it was their way of hedging and their way of saying, well, you know, I'll do it if I can. You know, in my family, when I was growing up, we, we, we would do this all the time when it came to the words, I promise. We would say, we would say I'll do it, and, and then what my brothers or I would say, well, say you promise. <laughs> now, wait a second. Why do you have to say you promise? If you say you do it, won't you do it? But, but we all knew that if you said you'd do it and you didn't say I promise, that's kind of like, well, you, you, you intend to do it, but if it doesn't happen, oh, well just the way it goes, right? But if you say you promise, no, you got to do it, because if you, if you don't follow through your promise, man, you're in trouble. That's how we used to think about it, and this is what he's saying. He says, don't swear. Don't do this stuff. Don't play games with your words. Don't have this integrity. Don't let your integrity ever be doubted. Don't, don't do these kinds of things. People, Christians do these kinds of things all the time uh, with the way that they talk. In fact, Jesus corrects this exact thinking in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, Jesus says, for which is greater the gift of the altar or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Don't play games with your word. Be straightforward and show integrity. Do not hedge in your speech. Don't swear with the intention of breaking an agreement or a commitment 
if it doesn't work out like you think it should. And that includes your marriage. That includes your business commitments. That includes your decisions to do what you said you were going to do, paying bills on time. Very practical things. When you look towards the end of the earth and you think to yourself, well, the Lord's coming. I might don't have to worry about paying my bills anymore. Oh, come on. Don't do that. Don't be foolish. Show integrity in your commitments and show integrity in your speech. Very clearly, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Do not hedge here. The obviously is a command against lying. If you say yes when you know, you mean no. But I think it's deeper than that. He says here, do not give reasons for anyone to doubt your words. If you say something is true, can people bank on it? If you say you'll do something, can they rely on you? If you say something didn't happen, can people rely on you? A couple conclusion, in conclusion, I should say, a couple application points. First, our main focus has been on believers, how they ought to live out their lives in light of Jesus' second coming. With the certainty of Jesus' coming, what will you do? Have you pushed aside the promise of Jesus coming as something fanciful, something that will never happen? Have you been living in a fantasy land where you get to be your own master and no one's going to hold you accountable? Because when Jesus comes, he will come to rapture his church, he will come to judge the world, and he will establish his kingdom to rule and to reign. When he comes again, if you refuse to bow the knee to Christ, you will face your maker and you will face your creator. And I beg of you, friend, if you're the one who's been offered redemption at this point, you, at that point, you would have finally rejected it. And I, I think this redemption is still available today. I'm so thankful for that, that as, as the Bible tells us, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of coming to Him in faith. He has done all the work necessary by dying on the cross. And if you've been rejecting the coming of Christ, thinking it doesn't apply to you, well, then you need to come to Christ today because He did die for your sins. He offered His righteousness in you, <clears throat> for you who believe on the name of Jesus Christ. You will be saved. And coming to Christ in faith is the first step. Many believe in Him, but many of you have been living your life, or I should say not been living our lives in light of the coming of Christ. Instead of being patient, we've become impatient. We think God is slack concerning His promise. Instead of being thankful for what God brings our way, we grumble against each other. Instead of enduring, we give up. We say, what's the point? Instead of showing integrity, we act as though God can't hear what we're saying and doesn't see what we're doing. Have you refused to let your mind think on the accountability that comes when the Master returns? I want to close by saying this. I ask you today, come and seek forgiveness. We all need forgiveness for our sins against our Lord. Today, come before the God who mercifully will forgive you, and He loves you. If you've never been forgiven by Jesus Christ, if you've never called on Jesus to save you, today's the day to come before Him and say, Lord, I give. I'm not going to try to save myself anymore. I'm not going to try by my own righteous works to get rid of my sin because I need someone who takes my sin and pays for it on the cross. And God has offered that salvation freely to all who come through Jesus Christ. Would you come in faith and call on Him to save you? Come and rest in the power of Jesus to overcome sin. 
We call this power of God grace. Those of you believers who need to walk with God and you are struggling through sin and you, you, you find yourself in an impasse, would you come to God and ask Him for grace to overcome that sin? It takes faith to be patient. It takes faith to be thankful, to endure, and to show integrity. So I pray that today we will demonstrate this faith through the grace that God gives us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask for your grace now. We thank you for the promise of your second coming. We know that it is sure. We don't know when the hour or the day will be. Only the Father knows that, and we, we rejoice that we are ignorant of that fact because in this we can continue to move forward and to push forward to obey you and to show and demonstrate our faith. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we wait for the coming of Christ, that we would do so with a heart of faith, with a heart of endurance, thankfulness, integrity, and patience. Father, may we have, may we have a heart that is, that is ready to, to receive you when you come and that you would receive us uh, to yourself. Lord, we're thankful for the promises we have in the Word. We don't know how they're all going to play out, but we do know that you're faithful to your Word. Uh, but Lord, I pray for those who do not yet know you as their Savior. I pray that today would be the day where they finally bow their hearts to you and recognize that you are indeed the King and you are who you say you are. The Son of God come into the world, the world rejected, and you died for our sins so that we might have eternal redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and a home in heaven with you forever. Thank you for the peace you give through the Lord Jesus Christ, peace that's only offered to those who come in faith. So, Father, now as we settle our hearts, I pray that we would confess the sin that's before us. I pray that we would follow you with all of our heart. And if there's someone here today who needs to trust you as their Savior and begin that the life of a Christian being justified by faith, I pray they would do that in the quiet of this moment. I ask the piano to play as we have a few moments of quiet to consider these things. come and say, it is well with my soul. No matter what comes my way, you are here. You love me. You have mercy upon us. And Father, I pray your blessings. As we deal with you, Lord, I pray you would continue to work. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to close with a hymn, and hymn number, number 529, which is, it is well with my soul. As we go through hardship,